This is Macro Horizons, episode 91. Eyes of the Bondholder, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 19th. And a quick reminder, one investor's listless market is another's coiling price action. Volatility is in the eyes of the bondholder. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the most relevant price action in the Treasury market occurred further out the curve, where the sell-off in tins met support around 80 basis points on Friday, then we subsequently saw follow-through on Tuesday and Wednesday. The holiday shortened week didn't have a great deal of economic data, although we did see CPI, which came in with a solid print showing that inflation remains in the system, as well as a stronger than expected retail sales print. The information regarding the progress toward a vaccine continues to suggest that the path will not be a direct shot to a approved vaccine, but rather a process that continues to introduce uncertainty into financial markets. There was a modest pullback in equities, but with the S&P 500 still above 3,300, it's difficult to call the consolidation that we have seen a correction of any sort. The bigger issue at this stage will be the run-up to the presidential election on the 3rd of November. With the upper bound of the trading range in Treasury yields well-established, we're anticipating a couple weeks of in-range consolidation that allows the market to burn off some of the oversold conditions that we saw at the beginning of October and establish a meaningful volume bulge from which to respond and absorb the outcome of the election. The notion that the election will be highly contested continues to be well priced into the market the question remains how long will that process drag out suffice it to say the earlier the results come in in a definitive way the better that will be for risk assets and that will clear the way for the treasury market to price in some of the more constructive fundamental data that we have been seeing recently the flip side being, if the outcome is unknown for several weeks, that will put downward pressure on domestic equities and support the treasury market, creating a material challenge to the bear steepening call into the end of the year. We are reaching the point in the year where projections are made for the year ahead. So as 2021 estimates start to come into focus, it will be notable to see how constructive the market has become or not on the prospects for the real economy in the year ahead. 
given the amount of monetary policy stimulus and fiscal stimulus that's already in the system and the prospects for a further injection of both, frankly, will be focused on the projections for inflation and inflation expectations in the year ahead. The process of pricing into higher inflation expectations will be consistent with the bear steepening bias into year end. Nonetheless, that move can only go so far and we'll be cognizant of the feedback between domestic equities and rates if we do see 10-year yields back up close to 1% by year end. So Ian, it was a meaningfully stronger than expected retail sales report. And at least to me, the knee-jerk reaction towards higher rates was larger than I would have otherwise anticipated. Now, of course, this still leaves tens in this incrementally higher rate plateau we set last week. But nonetheless, there was actually a response to economic data, which was a welcome development. Yeah, Ben, you make a great point. Over the course of the last several weeks, what we have been seeing is a treasury market, and to a large extent equities as well, willing to pretty much ignore any economic data. Now, while if we look historically at the size of the beat in expectations in retail sales versus the net price action, I wouldn't characterize it as abnormal. In fact, in a typical market, one might suggest it was still a muted response. However, in the context of what we've seen in the run-up to the election, the fact of the matter is, if we could get three or four basis points in 10-year yields out of a better-than-expected retail sales print, that doesn't really change the narrative for the third quarter, I would consider that at least a momentary return to the more traditional trading dynamics in treasuries. The other thing that I would highlight is at 75 basis points, 10-year rates are not that far from the recent peak, which was slightly below 80. And as we consider the next two weeks ahead of the presidential election in the U.S., we continue to anticipate that the range trading theme will hold, and 80 basis points now appears to represent the upper bound, at least until after we get the results from Decision Day 2020. And we'll talk about the election a little bit more, but even before that, a piece of very valuable information, I think, is going to be the initial look at Q3 GDP. And I would argue that the modest repricing we saw to retail sales fits well with a theme that we consistently rely on, and that is, as important potential inflection points in the market approach, in this case, the GDP numbers, the treasury market will move to reflect consensus ahead of those prints. Now, what this implies to me is that 75, 80 basis point 10-year yields reflects what is going to undoubtedly be a very strong bounce in Q3 GDP. Current consensus sits around 32% on an annualized basis, and that really clears the way for the rest of the fourth quarter to inform where it is we go from here. And something that you, I think, correctly highlight often is once the election results are in hand, that will give investors the opportunity to move forward to trading the actual economic outlook and a return to a more data-dependent paradigm. Now, it's important also to acknowledge the rising COVID cases in Europe and what that might imply for a second wave in the U.S., but nonetheless, I think an increase in the relevance of the data in the post-election period follows intuitively. 
And it's also consistent with what we have seen historically from a seasonal perspective, and that is as year-end approaches, there's a strong tendency on the part of investors to price into the outlook for the year ahead and operating under the assumption that 2021 can't be as dire for the real economy as 2020 was, I think it's well within the realm of conceivable outcomes that there will be upward pressure on longer dated yields. One of my primary concerns in this context, however, is if we take a look at the pre-pandemic period, call it 2017 to 2019, what we find is that equity prices were particularly vulnerable to any swift backup in rates. This dynamic was not linked to any particular outright level of yields. For example, 10-year yields would go above 3%, equities would wobble, then it was 2.5, equities would wobble, then it was 225, and equities would wobble. The unifying theme being that equities would wobble. And as we contemplate the balance of the year, a fundamentally driven rise in treasury yields that brings into question equity valuations is a real risk and will ultimately serve to limit the bearishness that is expressed in treasuries. The feedback loop in terms of monetary policy would simply be that a sell-off in equity spikes volatility, which tightens financial conditions, which gets the Fed back into action. And this context back into action would involve a WAM extension that seems to be consensus at this point, and subsequently the bull flattening that that would imply. And this was a very good question we got this past week, which is how comfortable would the Fed be with higher longer dated yields? And there's a couple nuances around this that I think can help inform the expectation for the reaction function. First is the resilience of equities, exactly as you say, Ian. Secondly, I would point to the performance of the mortgage basis and the potential for a rise in longer dated yields to be accompanied by a narrowing in the mortgage basis that would translate to end user mortgage rates not rising in a commensurate fashion. Given that home borrowing costs are one of the most direct channels by which interest rates influence consumption, a narrowing mortgage basis would likely make the Fed incrementally more patient, just given the fact that the influence on the individual household would be marginally less. And finally, I think the breakdown of what causes the rise in yields matters. And what I mean by that is if a pickup in 10 and 30 year yields is driven by increasing inflation compensation, which you could see in the break evens market, rather than an increase in real yields, that in some ways is actually exactly what the Fed is after. Following the pivot to average inflation targeting and outcome based forward guidance, policymakers have explicitly set themselves the goal of driving not only realized inflation, but also inflation expectations higher. So given 10-year break-evens are now only at 170 basis points, the greater upside there would translate to higher nominal yields, and the FOMC would be comfortable with that, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that the Fed, to a large extent, would like to avoid any additional monetary policy responses in 2020. Now, there does seem to be a collective understanding that barring a significant downtrade in risk assets that the Fed will be inactive at least until the December meeting. In Powell's eyes, surely the best case scenario is that they're able to forego any additional easing, whether it's in the form of a WAM extension, an increase in QE, or some other easing efforts, still remains to be seen. Therefore, in the context of a steady Fed, 
the next several weeks of price action will be particularly informative. Then, as you point out, real yields matter, but more importantly in the near term will be the degree of uncertainty that emerges in the wake of the November 3rd presidential election. The notion that the risks are somewhat binary resonates. We either get a clear, decisive victory from one candidate or the other within the first 48 hours, or the outcome is contested and the process drags on much longer than it has historically. Now, clearly, the longer the process drags on, the more uncertainty that introduces into financial markets and the broader economic outlook. Even considering that, the biggest issue driving the economic outlook for the next year will be the path of the pandemic. And admittedly, the incoming headlines associated with progress toward a vaccine make it unclear in terms of the exact timing. The reality is that investors continue to anticipate that some version of a viable vaccine will be accessible by the middle of 2021. Anything that brings that assumption into question or suggests that the second wave in the U.S. will be more dramatic than the first would rather swiftly lead to a more significant repricing, both in risk assets as well as treasuries. And looking at the period ahead of the election, the likelihood of a fiscal package could also certainly dictate trading, even if it is within the ranges that we've been talking about. That's also something to consider, regardless of the speed with which the election outcome is known. Should we see a long, drawn-out, contested process? Attention in Washington will probably be elsewhere rather than reaching a compromise on a fiscal deal. Now, this definitely doesn't preclude something from making its way to the floor of Congress in the next two weeks. But given the developments over the past several days, the ongoing collaboration between McConnell, Pelosi, and President Trump will be a space to watch for sure. So with that backdrop, and as the second half of October comes into focus, how is the supply landscape shaping up? Yeah, given the calendar during this upcoming week, one of the most potentially market-moving events, I would argue, is the $22 billion 20-year auction. And given the fact that since the first auction we saw in May, the average result for a 20-year auction is, wait for it, in line with pre-auction WI levels, is a testament to the Treasury Department's success in rolling out this new bond. And even looking at the investor allotment data, that is the breakdown between brokers and dealers, foreign accounts, domestic investment funds, the fact that we've seen 20s show statistics that are almost exactly in line with the breakdown between 10s and 30s supports the notion that there's a strong, diverse investor base that utilizes the 20-year auctions to add exposure to that point in the curve. Now, this doesn't rule out an outright or relative concession in the early part of this week ahead of Wednesday's auction, but in any case, it's reasonable to expect we'll see a good round of sponsorship, especially considering this modest sell-off we've seen from last month's 20-year auction rate at 121 basis points. And something else that's worth adding is in the secondary market, while the 20-year sector doesn't represent as significant of an overall market share as, for example, 10s and 30s, it has seen a slow and steady increase since the benchmark was introduced, which speaks to a deepening liquidity pool and more activity in the area. In the long term, that should support the underwriting process in the sector and create the opportunity for the Treasury Department to utilize the sector more if needed to extend the weighted average maturity of their issuance. So 
twenties were the best thing to come out of 2020? 2020 isn't over, but with hindsight. Everything is 2020. Ah, 2020, a year to forget. In the week ahead, there's remarkably little economic data and only a couple auctions. We have the 20-year nominal auction on Wednesday at $22 billion, and then the five-year tips auction on Thursday at $17 billion. The bigger issue will be that of consolidation and any potential extension of some of the weakness that we've recently seen in equity prices, as the S&P 500 could arguably look a bit double-toppy given the moves that we've seen over the course of the last two weeks. Ten-year yields at 70 to 75 basis points appear to have found something of an equilibrium, and we're reminded that the departure point immediately ahead of the election will be pivotal in determining just how far rates can back up once we do have the clarity of who will be in the White House, combined with the incremental economic data that we'll receive between now and then. Most notably will be the October 29th release of third quarter GDP with the expectations for a rebound above 30% in annualized terms. There will undoubtedly be renewed chatter about a V-shaped recovery. That said, the K-shaped narrative continues to resonate as we do see some sectors and some firms in the real economy outperforming those of others. Clearly, the frontline service sector continues to struggle. That's evident in both the employment data as well as the performance of those firms in financial markets. While it's by no means an exciting call from a strategy perspective, the default wait-and-see stance over the course of the next couple weeks are much more likely than not to keep financial markets in a very well-defined range as the process of consolidation continues and investors begin to look beyond 2020 at the shape of the recovery and the implications for both inflation, unemployment, and the overall patterns of consumption once the economy returns to some version of a new normal. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with compliance training season approaching, we're all too cognizant that there is no greater anxiety than zero allowable incorrect responses left and five questions to go. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts.
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.